0: And if you would please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 and stand with me please for our reading of God's Holy Word. I believe we just sang about really good things, don't you? Amen, amen. My thanks to our team of musicians and singers and to our men who read the word of God for us this morning. I'm grateful for everyone who helps us to worship. And for those who help set up and all the rest, we are certainly, certainly grateful. First Peter chapter 1, have you found it? God's word for us today is found in verses 3 through 5, and here's what the Lord says to us today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Let's pray together. Lord, You are good, and we are grateful for your saving grace and your keeping powerful mercies. And I pray that this morning, as we study your word, you will teach us only truth, and I pray that you will bring us to lives of repentance and thanksgiving and change, salvation, whatever you want to do with us. I pray you'll do it well with us this morning. Grant us hope and joy and life, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I grew up uh, in the Midwest, many of you know, and in spring and early summer back in the Midwest, we had some of the most amazing thunderstorms you could ever, any of y'all ever witness a Midwest thunderstorm? They're different than they are out here, aren't they? And I can remember we'd sit on the porch and we would just watch the lightning in the sky and the clouds rolling toward us and the wind would pick up and the breeze would get cooler. And eventually across the fields, you know, where I lived it was cow pastures, you know, but across the fields these sheets of rain would just start rolling across until they finally hit. And the funny thing about a spring thunderstorm in the Midwest is... Long, long before the gray clouds are in the southwestern part of the sky and long before the alerts come out on the TV or on the radio back then, you could just feel that the storm was on its way. Something about the change in the air pressure, something about the feel of the evening, just let you know what was coming. And now I never have, by the grace of God. Have any of you ever broken a bone You ever notice how well you can tell what's happening with the weather? (laughs) You know something's coming. Some of you, by the way, have broken many bones. Uh, Yawn. But you know, that feeling of, man, something in my bones says a storm's coming. I think Peter had that feeling in his old bones in somewhere around 63, 64 A.D., maybe 62, because he knew a storm was coming. He knew persecution was coming. And in his first letter in the scriptures, Peter writes words of courage and hope for believers, scattered exiles about to face a really difficult period. Here's something else you need to know. When I was a kid, we were never scared of the storms. We just weren't. There might be strong winds, there might be pounding rain, there might be lightning, there might be tornadoes. We weren't worried. Because we knew, in my family, if it got bad enough, we would go down into my granddad's basement and we would wait out the worst. See, no matter how bad the storm is, friends, if you know you're going to come out the other side, you don't lose heart. Well, in just the same way... Christians in the first century needed to know that no matter how bad the storm of persecution would be that was on the horizon, they needed to know that they could and they would stand. They needed to know that they would come out the other side. And what gave the first century persecution expecting church hope? That's the very thing that needs to give you and me hope in our present generation because we too have no idea how hard things could get in our culture if the world around us continues to oppose the things of God. Do you honestly sit back comfortably and believe that there's no chance Christians in our culture could ever be persecuted? If you do, you're not thinking straight. Like the first century church, we need to cling to something. And I would say that Peter tells us here that we're going to cling to glorious salvation. By the way, that's our little sermon title for today, Glorious Salvation. We need to know that if God saved us, God will keep us. We need to know that even if the things that we face in our future cost us our earthly lives, God has a salvation for us that will more than make up for anything we could ever lose. Now, if you're a note taker and some of you are, I want you to make room for a set of eight things to write down as we look at this section for a second time. Peter's told us in the first of verse three, first part of verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's called us to praise God. Now we're going to get eight reasons why. And all eight of those reasons are related to salvation. And all eight of those reasons to praise God are loaded with theological truths. So obviously, if there's eight, we need to get started right now. So let's go. Point number one. Salvation is from the mercy of God. Salvation is from the mercy of God. Where do I get that? Look at verse three. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again. First among the reasons to praise God for your salvation, if you're saved, is the fact that your salvation is according to the great mercy of God. How many of you know who John Newton was? He wrote a famous song. What song did he write? Amazing Amazing Grace. Very good, very good. Now, before John Newton died, He's quoted as having said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great savior. Newton knew a lot about the grace of God. He had been a slave ship captain. He was part of kidnapping and selling human beings. That's evil. But he had been saved by the mercy of God. And John Newton's tombstone today, you could go visit it, it reads, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. What would you say is the right word to describe salvation granted to a nasty human being? What's the right thing to say about God not crushing to powder a man who had done everything he could as a scoundrel to earn the wrath of God? What is the right word for God withholding the hell that a man like John Newton deserved? The word, my friends, is mercy. Wouldn't you say? God had mercy on a sinner like Newton, and that led to, that was Newton's salvation. And the same questions could be asked of any single one of us sitting in this room right now and anyone hearing this later. We have all sinned against God. One way or another, you and I are sinners, right? We've all earned the judgment of God, and the fact that God has chosen to withhold from us the hell we deserve, that's true. Listen, if you aren't in hell right now, you're having a better day than you deserve. In the Old Testament, the people of God, when they built the tabernacle, were told by God to build a very special chest, a box. And it was called the Ark of the Covenant. And in that box was, t- was placed the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And those Ten Commandments summarized the law of perfect righteousness that Israel was supposed to live by if they wanted to avoid the judgment of God. And you and I both know this. The Ten Commandments are laws that the people of God broke time and time and time again. But God also commanded something else be made, not just a box. God commanded that a covering be made for that chest. There was a golden lid, a grating, a lid that went over the top. And that lid came between the all-consuming justice of God and the law of God that the people so regularly broke. And it was on that covering where the blood of a lamb was sprinkled on the day of atonement to protect people from the wrath of God that they had earned because they violated the law that they said they would follow, but they never did. Do you know what God called that lid, that covering, that place that protected the people from the judgment of God falling on them for breaking the law that they were guilty of breaking? You know what the lid was called? God called it the mercy. It was the mercy of God that stood between the people and the right judgment of God. But there's no golden grating, no lid that can protect you and me from the judgment that we deserve for violating the standard of God. You and I have turned against God You and I have fought against God in places in our lives. Sometimes we have sinned against God on purpose. You have, haven't you? Sometimes we choose just to ignore it. I don't care what you said, God. I want this and I'll do it. Sometimes you and I have sinned against God on accident just by not living up to the perfection that we could never live up to. And the only thing that can save you and me from facing the hatred that God has for sin, the right justice of God for our wrong, what we deserve, the only thing that can protect us is the mercy of God. There had to be bloodshed to pay for our sins and protect us from the judgment we've earned. So why would we praise God for salvation, friends? First, Praise God, because your salvation, if you're saved, finds its source in the mercy of God. Your salvation comes because God has chosen not to give you the judgment that you have earned. My salvation comes because God has chosen not to give me the judgment I deserve. The blood of Jesus Christ on the mercy seat as you will, as the mercy seat as you will, the blood of Jesus stands between you and me and the fury of God for our sins. This is mercy. And that's a cause for great praise. So I would say praise God because salvation is from the mercy of God. You think that's worth praising God for? Point two. Salvation is caused by God. Caused by God. Verse 3. Again, I want you to know the sermon points that I give you are never hard to find. He has caused us to be born again. So what happened to every Christian because of God's mercy? God caused us to be born again. Stop and mentally underline that word caused. Or, you know, if you've got Some people still have paper copies of the scripture. You could actually do it on your paper copy. You could use the highlight on your phone. Highlight that word caused. God is the cause of your salvation. Any theology that you have that does not say that is faulty. Now, this principle ties us back to the words of verses 1 and 2. Remember what Peter said to the people about their salvation early. earlier? He called the Christians the elect exiles, right? And two weeks ago, we spent a good bit of time talking about what it means to be elect and chosen by God. And, and we saw what it means that God would, before your life ever began, set his love upon you and set you apart in the spirit that you might eventually be saved by his grace through faith in Jesus. There's no doubt, if anybody wants to be saved, they must come to Jesus in faith and repentance. But what we saw is that everyone who is saved had been elected by God beforehand to do so. Now we just see the word caused. God is the ultimate cause of your salvation. This means that God is the one who must receive all of the credit for the fact that you're saved. And if we understand the word caused correctly... We have to understand that if God is the cause of our salvation, then we cannot claim to be the cause of our salvation. We receive the benefit of God electing us and causing our salvation. I think there's doctrinal dynamite here. Because at the end of the day, every Christian who considers his or her salvation has to ask the question, who ultimately caused my salvation? At the end of the day, am I the cause of my salvation because I provided the decisive move because I provided the causal choice? Or is God the cause of my salvation because he chose me, set me apart by the spirit and made me desire to obey his command to trust in Jesus? If, I believe this is fair. I don't want to be unfair to anyone. But I believe that if I... Did something to cause my salvation. If I cause my salvation by my actions or my choices, depending on what religion you come from, then I would believe that I deserve at least a modicum of credit because I at least thought rightly. I at least chose rightly. I at least did what I was told. I submitted wisely enough to earn that favor. But we know that salvation is according to the mercy of God and caused by God. And I believe that says that it is not, therefore, to our credit, but it is to, 100% to the glory of God. Also remember, by the way, the Bible is pretty clear. If we're not, if we're not saved, because, again, this is a sticking point for people when we talk about God causing salvation. The Bible is clear. If you're not saved, if you're not eternally rescued, it's not because God took action to prevent your salvation. No man can take any credit for his own salvation. But every lost person must accept full responsibility for sinning against God, for turning against God, for not wanting in any way to come to God by grace through faith in Christ. So however you try to define it, know this. The only thing that I brought to my salvation was the sin. I was good at that, by the way. God brought the grace. Now, however you try to define your salvation, you got to come to grips with the question of who caused you to be saved. And if your salvation makes you the ultimate final mover, if you're the one who made the difference between being saved and being lost, then you have to claim at some level to be the cause of your own salvation. Again, at least I think that's logically fair. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's logically fair. But Peter here says, God is the one who caused our salvation. And I would suggest that we need to submit to that truth from the word of God. With me? Third point. Salvation is being born again. Salvation is being born again. Where do I get that? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So what is it God caused? He's caused us to be born again. And I think we all know it. If we hear the phrase born again in the scriptures, we're talking about salvation. We're not talking about reincarnation. We're talking about being spiritually saved. Where did it come from? Well, you know, you all know Peter walked with Jesus. It was 30 years before he wrote this letter, but Peter walked around the, uh, the countryside of Galilee in, in Judea, and Judea and he witnessed the Savior teach. And Peter would have definitely known the story of a man named Nicodemus. Who knows, Peter might have even been standing there when Nicodemus approached Jesus by night to ask who Jesus is and to talk about salvation But it was John who wrote for us the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In John 3, verses 3 through 8, just after Nicodemus has come with a nice flowery compliment for Jesus to try to open a discussion about his identity, here's what we read. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus came, he asked Jesus about his identity and the Savior cuts through all the formality and he tells Nicodemus, if you ever, Nicodemus, want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to have your spiritual eyes start working, what has to happen first? You must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand. Jesus shows us that Nicodemus should have understood, but he didn't. And so Jesus is clear. The only way that any person ever sees the kingdom of God is if he is given by God new birth, a birth that is spiritual and not merely physical. And notice here, Jesus then talks in the passage about the work of the Spirit. He says, the wind blows. That's kind of odd, but if you know this in Greek, the Greek word for for spirit and the Greek word for word the same word so it's kind of fun what jesus is doing here very similar sounding words Um, says we know that the wind blows we can see its effect but we can't see what starts the wind and we certainly can't start the wind ourselves have you ever noticed you can't make the wind start or stop have you ever wanted to I mean, we live in the desert. I guarantee you, you've said, I wish I could get a breeze. But try one day and see how well you can do starting it. Well, in just the same way, Jesus says, the Spirit of God moves on his own to cause us to be born anew, born to eternal life. Now, later in John chapter 3, Jesus is going to make it absolutely clear that every single person, nobody's left out, every single person who comes to him in faith will be saved. But before he tells us that, he tells us that this is caused by the moving of God's spirit to grant us new birth, new birth to new eternal spiritual life. And, And even the born again imagery places all the credit for your salvation in the hands of God, doesn't it? No baby causes his or her birth Um, gosh I wish Kevin and Danielle were here because Kevin has this glorious story from when Carter was about to be born and the people in the hospital kept saying to Kevin oh the baby's telling us that she's just about ready to come or you and and Kevin's like no the baby's not telling you anything the baby's not speaking at this point No child in his or her mother's womb is considering whether or not they like the concept of arriving on a Thursday. No. A child who is born is caused to be born by forces well beyond that child's control. And even if that child could think to himself or herself, man, I must have caused that. I kicked really hard and here I went. Growing up, And learning about the human body would help that child learn that even if they thought they had done it, they find out later, I didn't have anything to do with being born at all. Being born happened to me. I didn't bring it about. Now let's tie all three of these first three truths together. Because this is heavy, you know, this is some deep waters we're swimming in, right? Salvation is from God's mercy. Salvation is caused by God. Salvation is being born again. Friends, being rescued by God is something that happens to you. It's not something that you bring about to your own credit. Thus, it is all to the glory of God. And so if you're a Christian, you praise God for salvation. Now, if you hear this and you're not a Christian, listen to me. You are commanded by God to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for salvation. If you don't do that, you don't have an excuse. You don't get to say, well, God has to bring it about in me. No, 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 no. If you're thinking about it, you don't know what work God's doing behind the scenes because you're like that baby that has no idea what's happening on the outside. You need to obey the command to turn from your sin, to put down your pride, to believe in Jesus, and to repent to be saved. That is the command of God, and I urge you, trust in Jesus. If you do, you will be saved. If you don't, it will be your choice not to. If you do, you'll find out later God did gracious things that you couldn't see. That's how this works. But think about this from this way, friends. How might these things give hope for Christians living in a harsh Persecution filled world, because remember, I said that's the issue, right? Storm clouds are on the horizon. If I cause my salvation by my force of my will and my choices, what happens if the harshness of persecution gets to me? Do you feel the fear? What happens if I fall away? What happens if I can't handle the pain? What happens if the hardship gets to me and I compromise? If I caused my salvation, I could begin to wonder if I have what it takes to keep myself saved. Isn't that logical? But if I didn't cause it, if my salvation is fully the work of God, I can rest in my salvation no matter what the world throws at me because I can know if God elected me, if God saved me by God's mercy, if God caused it all, if God brought me to spiritual birth, then I can know God will be the one who keeps me. My salvation was his work. My salvation is his work. My salvation will be his work. And God will not allow me to ruin my salvation in a time of hardship. And that's why we praise God for salvation in the face of potential persecution. Point four. Salvation is to a living hope. You guys doing okay so far? Okay. How is it to a living hope? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You see where this comes from, right? Being born indicates the beginning of a life right your salvation is a birth to a living hope this is very good news now in the bible you have to understand that the word hope when the word hope is used in the bible is used differently than the way that we often use the word hope i might hope that the golden knights do well in the stanley cup right how many of you hope the knights do well okay right now now does that mean a thing nope we have, they might get swept four games to none, right? Our hope is a wish. I might hope that after a church service, somebody will want to buy me a burrito. But I, I have no guarantee that's going to happen, right? Now listen, when you use hope that way, you're just meaning it's a wish. I want it to be granted. It might or might not happen, when the bible uses the word hope it never talks like that it's not a wish that may or may not come true in scripture hope is a sure thing an absolute guarantee you just don't have it all in your hands yet Peter Peter says if you are saved, you're born not only to hope but to a living hope. There is a future promise, Christian, a future of grace for everyone saved by Jesus. There is a certainty of the grace of God. There is a certainty of eternal life for everyone who comes to Jesus. And that hope is not dead. It's not a hope that could ever be lost. It's not a hope that could ever be removed. No, the hope we have is a living hope. So when a person is saved, he or she is made newly alive. They're born again. And when we're made alive, what we're made alive to is a promise, a sure thing, a living hope. We don't look at the future and wonder if we're going to make it. We don't look at the future and wonder if if it's all going to work out. We look at the future and we see something alive, something that welcomes us, embraces us, and promises us total peace, total comfort, total joy for a total of eternity. We are born again to the hope of eternity with Christ, the eternity that God created us for in the first place. I love that. Fifth point, keep going. Salvation is based on Jesus' resurrection. Salvation is based on Jesus' resurrection. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How can the hope to which we are born be a living hope? How can it be so sure? What is the foundation of our hope? The answer is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have as sure of an eternity as we have certainty that the Son of God is alive right now. You believe Jesus is alive? Then eternity is sure. Sure. If Jesus is alive, everyone who knows Jesus has the same kind of living hope. You know, there's a lot of religions in the world, and most of them have at their origin a figure, a sort of heroic founder, and many of those religion founders suffered or even died for their beliefs. Other founders of world religions died of old age, or disease, which is kind of funny when you think of the lady that did Christian science, right, who said that all disease and stuff is fiction. Anyway, but you can visit the graves of founders of other religions, but Christianity is different. It is significantly and eternally different. Our faith is based on the Son of God who, yeah, He died to pay for our sins, but He rose again, the Bible says, for our justification. Your faith is not based merely on the fact that Jesus died. Your faith is based on the fact that after Jesus died, yeah, He gave up His spirit After Jesus died, he was buried. He had fully paid for our sins. He had willingly given up his spirit. After he died, Jesus Christ came back to life. He stood up. He walked out of the tomb. He spoke to hundreds of people, and he changed the world forever. Jesus rose from the grave, and he never died again. Jesus is alive today. Now, when I say that, get this, I don't mean figuratively, right? If you, if you look at the, just the atrocious things that are thought up by the world around us, I, um, one of my children and I are reading through a book series right now in which um, they, they, the, the main character uh, ends up running into the ghosts of, of people who had gone before him. And, and he, he said, are you really here? And they say, oh, we're part of you oh, that's, that's wonderful, but they're not alive. That's just some sort of wispy, false belief that somehow you carry in yourself the spark of life of others who have gone before you. That is not what the Bible means when it says Jesus is alive. What it means when it says Jesus is alive is that the body got up, stood up, walked out, and is alive, and he's never going to die again. And our hope is in Jesus, which means our hope is a living hope. It's in Jesus' identity. He calls himself the resurrection and the life. In John uh, 11, 25, and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever, every, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asked. Amen. How does that help you face a hard world? Jesus promises you if you die in Him, you have resurrection in Him. That's good. Jesus promises you that because He lives after death, if you're His, you get to live after death. No matter how you die, you can look at the threat of death and you can know that that kind of threat is not a final threat. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He said, fear God, not death. Jesus tells us, don't you fear anybody who can just kill your body. For the Christian, the threat of death is the threat of opening up a portal to eternal joy, eternal happiness, eternal peace if a persecutor threatens our lives, a true believer in the Lord Jesus because of the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to crumble. We can say, so you're threatening to send me to be with Jesus. Bring it on. (laughs) Point six. Salvation is to an eternal inheritance. This is so much fun toward the middle and end. It says he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Honest question. Have you ever wished that you might have a long-lost, rich uncle die and leave you a fortune? We've seen it in the movies. We're not wishing ill on anybody. Don't, don't mistake it. But I think there are many of us in this room who think to ourselves we could make use of an unexpected million or two. <laughs> well, the inheritance that Peter's talking about here is better than a bunch of money from dead Uncle Louie. The inheritance that Peter's talking about brings to mind the promises of God and the glories of God. See, in the Old Testament, God promised his people an inheritance, right? You remember all that inheritance language kept being used in the Old Testament? God told Abraham, later Moses, that the people of God could have an inheritance in the land of Canaan. God would help Israel come up out of Egypt. God would help them to have that inheritance by conquering the land and driving out its inhabitants. And they could keep their inheritance so long as they continued to follow the law of God. That was a good inheritance, right? But man, is there one better than that. The people of God, true followers of God, have always known that there's an inheritance better than money or property or health or fame in this life. Again, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Peter talks about our inheritance, friends, how solid does he make it? He says our inheritance, the promise for all Christians, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading those are all three everlasting words. Imperishable things don't spoil, they don't die, they don't decay. Things that are undefiled are never ruined, they're never dirty, they're never sullied by the world around them, not tainted. Things that do not fade don't fade don't go away with the passage of time you put those three words together and you see that our living hope based on the eternal life of jesus can never no not ever no not ever be broken or be destroyed or be or just pass away it's not going to happen our inheritance is eternal unshakable our inheritance is more solid than your life is in the here and now Ephesians 1, 11-14, listen to how similar Paul's language is speaking to us. I mean, this sounds like they were reading the same book or talking to the same God. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 11, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Sounds familiar? Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you hear all that? God predestined us to an inheritance And His Holy Spirit is the seal on our lives that guarantees that our inheritance is a sure thing that could never, never, never be lost. That, friends, is a big reason to praise God for salvation. Point seven. Salvation is guarded by God. Verses four and five again. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept In heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Now, a persecuted Christian, somebody fearing that he might fail, really wants to know, how can I be sure that I can't lose this eternity? Because everything else in my life is being taken away from me. My home can be taken, my family can be taken, my health can be taken, my clothes can be taken, my freedom can be taken, my dignity can be taken. How do I know this can't be taken? Because our inheritance is kept and guarded by God. That's how you know. Our inheritance is as strong and as sure and as stable as God is. Who you want guarding your soul? Who could guard your soul, your eternity better than the Lord himself? If your inheritance is guarded by God, what could possibly take it away from you? If you're a persecuted Christian, what would you say? I'm scared. I'm scared of... Of, of of tribulation, I'm scared of famine. I'm, I'm scared of what happens if I go hungry. What if I'm impoverished? What if I'm beaten? What if what if somebody with a sword comes at me? I might give up. Romans chapter eight thirty five to thirty nine. Paul says, "Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution? You hear how the first century church would be going? Uh oh, I'm listening." or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. What else should I think of? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Peter said in verse 5, God keeps us. God guards us. You can't lose that. But he says, God guards us. Look at this. Through what does God guard you? Through faith. This is interesting. That means that God's going to keep you, Christian. And he's going to guard. What's he going to guard? He's going to guard your inheritance. But he's not just doing that. He's going to actually be the one who guards your faith. Peter is not saying, hey, once saved, always saved. Pray the prayer and then live whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. Peter is not saying, God's going to keep you, so if you lose faith and never return, no big deal. No. What Peter's saying is, since God caused your faith, since God caused your rebirth, God is going to be the one who keeps your faith. You can know if you're a Christian today, you're going to be a Christian tomorrow because your faith, if it's real faith, is kept and guarded by God. Eighth point, last point. Some of you can go, (sighs) Salvation will be revealed at the return of Christ. Verse 5, he says, We're kept for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why praise God for salvation? At the end, your salvation is something you praise God for because it's something that's going to be seen as true and as solid and as sure and as stable and as lasting at the return of Jesus. In the last time when the Lord Jesus returns to this earth and the Lord Jesus will return to this earth, praise God for that, when Jesus returns the genuineness, the stability of your salvation is going to be proved. Those who have come to faith in Jesus are going to be given brand new resurrection bodies, and we will live eternally in the presence of God on a renewed earth. How do I know? 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in, the, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18, Paul says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are uh, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why praise God for salvation? Praise Him because if you're saved, that salvation is gonna be seen, realized, Fully experienced when Jesus Christ returns. Saved people with new bodies are going to live sin-free, incorruptible lives on an uncorrupted earth where the curse is gone and the glory of Jesus remains forever. And that's gonna be good. When I was a kid, we didn't fear the storms. Why? Not even the scary ones. We had full confidence that we were going to come out the other side. God, in our passage today, is telling believers, don't fear the storms of persecution because he will bring you out the other side. Why praise God for salvation? Salvation is from the mercy of God. Salvation is caused by God. Salvation is to be born again. Salvation is to a living hope. Salvation is based on Jesus' resurrection. Salvation is to an eternal inheritance. Salvation is guarded by God. And salvation will be revealed at the return of Christ. If you have salvation, if you have confidence in, in, that you know Jesus, then have confidence in Jesus and hope. And praise God for this glorious gift of salvation. If you don't know where you stand with Jesus, here's what I urge you. Confess your sin to God. Submit to him. Believe in Jesus. Surrender your life to him today and ask for salvation. He will give it. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. Your word is so rich. There's a thousand ways, Lord, that we still have just barely scratched the surface of this text. But take the word that you've given us, take the salvation that you've put before us, and teach us and encourage us and cause us to move forward because of who you are. Cause us to move forward and be strengthened. Cause us glorify your name. Give us hope. Give us grace. Give us life. Help us get it right, Lord, that we might praise you and trust in you most. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.